It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Tuesday, October 6, 2020. On today's episode, Hershey Dwoskin is here with another episode of In the Headlines. Here is Hershey. Hi, everybody. Welcome uh, to our um, Tuesday afternoon discussion of current events. Um, <clears throat> Sometimes I pick one subject and speak about it for a whole hour. And other times, like today, I decided to kind of look at a few different things because um, all these things sort of came up during the week and it's worth mentioning. I just uh, would like to start very, very briefly about the um, US election, but um, that's not gonna be our subject. Uh, I saw the program last night, the town hall with uh, Joe Biden and um, he's been accused of sort of wandering and not thinking too straight. And in his performance with the, the debate with the Donald Trump, Donald Trump overpowered him so much that he never gave Joe Biden a chance to kind of get his foot in his mouth. But this time, with no opponent, he was asked such a simple question, which was, what would you do to unite the country? And he fumbled around the answer so badly that I was embarrassed. It was such a softball question that he took five minutes to answer a question without giving a good solid answer. So I think that, um, you know, in the future, that's kind of a way to uh, test him is just to let him go on and see what mistakes he makes. Uh, I also wanted to, uh, for your interest, uh, Michelle Obama released a 24 minute uh, endorsement of the Democrats and Joe Biden. And if you have a chance to watch it, uh, she's the, the most amazing speaker in the US. Um, and uh, certainly uh, whatever she says is worth listening to. Uh, you know, so much happens during the week with the president getting into the hospital. Today, the news that the, um, all the top military people are self-quarantining. It's like a week doesn't go by without surprises. And the question some people ask is, will Trump get a sympathy vote or will people blame him for bringing it on himself? And um, right now the polls are showing that the Biden is still has a healthy lead and that lead is growing. So uh, we'll keep our fingers on the pulse of the US and um, you know, we've got four more weeks to go and it's exactly four weeks today that the election takes place. So let's leave that subject alone for a second. Um, I wanted to speak very briefly about another subject that I read about quite interestingly, and that is the, um, the uh, sort of conflict in Europe between uh, the European Union itself as a union of countries and the individual countries making up the European Union who still have a lot of sovereignty and authority uh, to decide how to run their own countries. And sometimes these two, two things come into conflict. And um, one of the conflicts appeared sort of this week where um, the um, many countries in the world are offering citizenship to foreigners who do something for the country. Most of the time it's buying, um, investing in the country, buying property, uh, buying other assets in the country, creating jobs in the country, that kind of thing. The price for these citizenships ranged from as low as $100,000 in some of the islands in the Caribbean 
up to a half a million or even a more than a million dollars for some countries in Europe. Now, the thing about Europe, which is different from the Caribbean, is that once you get citizenship in one European country, it allows you to, of course, live, work, move, study in any of the European Union countries, the 28 of them. So in other words, in a sense, if you look at whatever the cheapest uh, ticket is in to the European Union and you buy that ticket, that enables you to go live in the wealthiest countries of Europe or, or any of the European country that you want. So some of the European countries started to complain this week that uh, the two cheapskates, we'll call them, which were Malta and Cyprus, um, two countries which have beautiful scenery but not much of an economy, they were offering their citizenship at too low prices. And once you get Maltese citizenship, you can go live in France, Germany, Holland, um, you know, uh, any of the other European countries. Um, and so this was a bit of a kind of a conflict between what's good for Europe as a whole and what's good for each individual country, which still has the right to give its own citizenship. So in a little bit of a study, um, uh, we see sort of how, besides buying citizenship, how can a foreigner get citizenship in a, another country? Of course, we know, for example, that in Israel, if you, are, if you have one Jewish grandparent, that allows you to move to Israel uh, and eventually to get citizenship. But other countries have a very similar kind of uh, strategy. And one that interested me the most was Italy. And I, of course, I, I didn't know that if you are of Italian descent, uh, a law in 1861, when Italy was formed, said that any person of Italian descent on your father's side could come to Italy and claim Italian citizenship. In 1948, it was changed to your father's side and your mother's side. So it took them uh, almost 100 years to figure that out. Uh, similarly, in Hungary, if you are of Hungarian uh, descent, uh, living outside of Hungary, uh, you have the right to move to Hungary and to claim citizenship so long as you pass a Hungarian language course, which if you don't know Hungarian, believe me, is not that easy to learn. But that is their condition. And so schools have opened up in Serbia to teach Hungarian for ethnic Hungarians who, who um, of course, uh, you know, may not know Hungarian. And uh, these people can then move from Serbia to Hungary and claim citizenship. Um, Austria and Germany have offered citizenship to descendants of Jews who were who were thrown out of those countries, uh, you know, during the uh, Hitler uh, period. Uh, and um, Portugal and Spain are offering citizenship to descendants of Jews who were uh, kicked out during the Spanish, uh, uh, the Inquisition and the um, expulsion from Spain and Portugal in the 1490s. Ironically, I was just reading that a, uh, a Palestinian who a uh, Palestinian Arab who uh, found out somehow or other that he has some Jewish um, uh, ancestors on his mother's side, uh, did some research and found out that they were uh, from Spain. And he claimed a Spanish citizenship on that basis and uh, was given it, surprisingly enough. 
Um, all of this, uh, my curiosity got started because I read an article about um, people from Argentina moving to Uruguay because of the uh, COVID crisis and the um, price that Uruguay charges for people to come to live there. And uh, you may know that Argentina today is the worst off country because of COVID uh, currently in South America. They also have a, a terrible um, inflationary economy. Uh, they've elected a very populist government without uh, much sort of uh, discipline in the economic scene. And so the Argentinian economy is not doing well. And on the contrary, the Uruguayan economy, which is right next door, uh, is doing relatively well. They, they have the best record in South America because of COVID. They have a very stable government, which a social democratic kind of government. And uh, so 30,000 Argentines applied to go live in Uruguay. And what the Uruguay did was because of this demand is they lowered the price by more than half to buy uh, a citizenship. And of course, for, for an Argentine to go live in Uruguay culturally is about the same as a Canadian going to live in the US. They're uh, practically identical cultures. And so that got me thinking a little bit about uh, this whole idea of, of buying citizenship and moving to make your lives better. And many countries in this world do offer this possibility. Uh, it's just that uh, the Uruguay one came up in, uh, in the news today. And like many countries, uh, Uruguay is a country where the population is getting older where uh, more and more people are on state aid and they need an influx of young blood to kind of revitalize the economy. And these Argentinians are just the right, the right thing. Um, so that's a kind of a, just a sort of a little survey a bit about, um, you know, migration and how you can legally move from one country to another without having any uh, roots in that country. The subject that I wanted to speak about mostly today, though, is one which uh, I'm sure you saw in the headlines, but which people know practically nothing about. And if you're the kind of person who's interested in um, learning about far off corners of the world um, and uh, learning some interesting facts and geography and things like that, so this is going to be a, a lesson for you. And um, this has to do with the outbreak of war between Armenia and Azerbaijan this week. So why is it important? Um, the reason is, first of all, that those two countries are considered part of Europe. So if there's a war bre breaking out there, uh, which is in the Caucasus region, I have a little map to show you, uh, it's still considered to be part of Europe. And once you have a war between two relatively small, relative, relatively weak powers, it's inevitable that the bigger, stronger neighbors are gonna sort of butt in and muscle in and try to take sides. And that's what's happened. And once the war develops an international aspect, then it becomes much more serious, much more dangerous, um, and, uh, you know, if people don't, if people are not careful, 
uh, instead of a war between two minor neighbors who, who are throwing apples at each other over the fence, uh, you can end up with uh, a major, um, you know, a major outbreak. So that's why it's important to keep our eyes on this, um, on this uh, conflict. Um, so I'm going to show you, I'm going to see how this is going to work. I have a map. Let's see how this works. Let's just see. Here's the top of the map. So at the top you see Georgia and Russia. So that's to the north. And if we go down, we see uh, Azerbaijan over here and Armenia over uh, Armenia over here. So these are the two people that are fighting, Azerbaijan and Armenia. Now inside of Azerbaijan, you see this little kidney-shaped piece of territory, completely surrounded on all sides. That territory is called Nagorno-Karabakh, and that's where the fighting is taking place. Over here on this side is the Caspian Sea, the world's largest lake. Uh, it's an ocean. It's a lake, but it's an ocean. Uh, so that's over here. And here's the city of Baku, which is the capital of, of uh, Azerbaijan. And um, then you see another little piece of territory, oddly enough, over here where my finger is. So this piece of territory is part of Azerbaijan, even though it's separated by Armenia from the rest of Azerbaijan. This little piece of territory here is Armenian populated even though it's separated from the rest of Armenia. And so these sort of complicated uh, enclaves, we'll call them, uh, at this point are the cause of this war. Now here are the other big neighbors. This is Turkey on this side here, which borders Armenia, and uh, Iran over here on the bottom, which uh, borders all the countries. So Iran is the biggest country in the neighborhood. And Turkey is the second biggest country, but this is the very far eastern part of Turkey. The famous biblical Mount Ararat is located right on the border between Turkey and Armenia, right sort of where my finger is. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunately a military zone for that reason, so you can't go climbing up looking for Noah's Ark. But lots of people have tried that. So you sort of see where it is. Russia is on the top of everything. So Russia is a close neighbor of both those countries. Um, and so is Georgia, which is the other Caucasus Republic. So this is all mountainous over here between the Caspian Sea on one side and the Black Sea on the other side is mountainous. And the mountains are called the Caucasus Mountains. And that's where we get the word Caucasian from, meaning somebody who is uh, descended from uh, these people. Um, and so there's three republics in the Caucasus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. Okay. So there's the map. That's what it looks like. And now I'll tell you, we'll start talking just about this little territory over here called, in Russian, it's called Nagorno-Karabakh, right there. So, um... Just a, a tiny little bit of, uh, of history is that that area was um, once part of the Persian Empire, all of that area, because Iran, you see, is so close. 
And in the 1800s, the Russians came and captured it and, and incorporated it into their territory. And it stayed that way until the communist revolution. Uh, like many places for a very, very brief time in 1918, uh, in the middle of the, uh, the, middle of the Soviet um, revolution, some of these places had a brief period of independence, but were quickly overcome by the Soviet forces. Now, uh, once the Soviets took over, uh, they had a, an interesting policy regarding uh, ethnicities and nations. And their policy was to, on the, on the one hand, to recognize the um, distinct languages and cultures and na nationalities that made up the Soviet Union. Uh, and they did this by recognizing different republics. So you had a Republic of Armenia, a Republic of Azerbaijan, a Republic of Georgia. But at the same time, they made these kind of ethnic differences and cultural differences relatively meaningless because they imposed the Russian language on everyone. Uh, Russian became compulsory in school. The, the country was ruled by Russian-speaking people. And they made, uh, they, they recognized these, these ethni ethnicities in order to not have nationalistic rebellions against Soviet rule on the one hand, but without giving these nationalities any real power on the other hand. So that was the sort of game plan of the Soviet regime. Now, in order to completely assure that there would be no kind of nationalistic rebellions or separatism, we'll call it separatism really. As Stalin, when he became leader, he, he devised another plan. And his plan was to draw the boundaries between the different constituent republics of the Soviet Union in such a way that there always would be minorities of one nationality um, living next to, in a different republic, but near the other uh, republic. In other words, the idea being, rather than having a 100%, let's, let's call it Armenian Republic, if he took some Armenians and put them in a different republic, then what his thinking was that there would be less um, uh, willingness for one of these countries to one of these republics to uh, rebel against Soviet rule and declare independence because their ethnic minorities would be living next door. And this was a purposeful thought out policy um, that he employed and, and, and pretty well in all of the Central Asian republics, they, they made sure to leave, for example, an Uzbek minority in um, Turkmenistan or an Uzbek minority in Kyrgyzstan a Kyrgyz minority in Uzbekistan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was the, that was the sort of well thought out idea. And they even went so far as to carve out these little enclaves of one nation uh, inside of another republic so as to even muddy the waters even more. And that's how the Republic of, not Republic, but the, these, we'll call it the autonomous what they called an autonomous republic um, uh, came to be in Nagorno-Karabakh. So to go back again, so this territory was uh, Armenian populated by roughly 
four to one, but surrounded completely by Azerbaijan and recognized as part of Azerbaijan, but having a semi-autonomous status. So other, other republics had the same idea. So in Georgia, there was a, um, uh, uh, two semi-autonomous republics of Ossetians uh, and um, I can't remember the Abkhazians. Inside Russia itself, there were 16 different semi-autonomous republics. Uh, the Chechens are probably one of the best known ones and the Tatars are another known one. And then they, then they even did something else. They put, you know, instead of semi they went down one level. Instead of having a sort of an autonomous republic within another one, they have a status called a semi-autonomous republic. And that's where the Jewish uh, so-called Birobijan came in, where the, where the Stalin set this sort of Jewish homeland up for, uh, for Jews uh, in the far east of, of, the, of Russia. And so by this divide and rule system, Stalin was ensuring that there would be no, um, no let's say 100% ethnic republic that would be willing to separate from the Soviet Union or start a war with the Soviet Union or something like that. And of course, he also encouraged uh, Russians to go move to these other places so as to dilute the native population with loyal Russian-speaking Russians who would keep an eye on things and make sure that no separatist movements got started. And so in every single uh, of the Soviet republics, and there were 16 of them, uh, Russians moved uh, to take high jobs, to um, you know, be the eyes and ears of Stalin in those different places. And so that's how you have this sort of collection of all kinds of little nationalities and sub-nationalities living all within this multicultural uh, Soviet empire where Russia is pre the predominant republic with the predominant language and the predominant leadership but they allowed enough ethnic diversity and sort of, uh, we'll call them folk, folk um, cultures so that the people would not feel as if they were being overly dominated by the Russians. And that's more or less how the Soviet Union was run, more or less from the beginning, especially call it from the 1920s up until the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. Now, needless to say, some nationalities get along better with others, okay? and some don't. Um, the Armenians and the Azeris were uh, in the category of the don'ts. In other words, um, Armenians are people who are of uh, Orthodox faith uh, in the main, and the Azeris are Muslims of the Shia, the Shia faith in Islam. Um, the Azeris are a Turkish, um, from the Turkish family of people, and the Armenians are from the uh, Indo-European family of people. And so by language and by religion and by culture, these were two very distinct peoples living on the borderlines of, uh, we'll call it Christianity, to the north and Islam to the south. And these people kind of got stuck right beside each other. Um, 
when the Soviet Union started to break apart, it was kind of not something that happened overnight. And the, the very, very first place in the entire Soviet Union that showed hostilities were, was in that Armenian versus um, Azeri uh, conflict. So with all the different nationalities that lived throughout the Soviet Union, from Ukrainians to Belarusians to Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, uh, you name it, you know, Georgians, uh, um, the, 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 the place where conflict started the very first was between those two people, the Armenians and the Azeris. And the way it sort of got started was that there was an anti-Armenian riot in Baku in 1990, in, uh, well, it started in the, in the very early 90s, and where some mobs attacked the Armenian um, uh, district of Baku. And in retaliation, uh, the, the, the Armenian community of Baku ran off back to Armenia um, or back to Nagorno-Karabakh and um, the Armenians then counterattacked by um, trying to take over, in other words, Nagorno-Karabakh, which was this separated island inside of Azerbaijan. In 1994, uh, the war broke out between the two countries and what happened was, is that the Armenians succeeded militarily to capture the territory, not only of, not only of Nagorno-Karabakh over here, but all the territory over here between Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh. So they took over this whole area here and made this all like one. Uh, now, the people who were living here were not Armenians, they were Azeris, and they all left or got kicked out. So they went to, to Baku, where they have, you know, centers for refugees and things like that. And so now, you see, now, effectively speaking, this area here, is now all Armenian from Nagorno-Karabakh all the way back to Armenia itself. Now Armenia did not annex or officially take over this territory. Um, the European Union told them not to do it. Uh, they said look if, if everybody can go and grab whatever they want we can have a world war on our hands. So what happened was is that the people, the leadership here, the local leadership declared independence. And they uh, were, they declared independence as an independent country in a similar way to the, the Cypriots, the Turkish Cypriots in Cyprus declaring an independent country. So only Turkey is the only country in the world that recognizes the Turkish Republic of North Cyprus. And Armenia is the only country in the world that recognizes the Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh as a separate country. Effectively speaking though, it's one, place. It's one country from here to here all the way through here. Now, the biggest player in this sort of uh, worldwide game is Turkey. Turkey over here. Turkey has had its own uh, unfortunate relationship with the Armenians as you all have heard perhaps. The Armenian genocide predated the Holocaust uh, 
Um, the Armenian Genocide is something that happened in the middle of the First World War. And the, um, the Armenian Genocide is uh, not recognized by Turkey as being a genocide at all. Um, and by the Armenians as being a genocide in the same way as the Holocaust was. So you have an event that happened in history with two opposite, uh, we'll call them explanations. So maybe it's worthwhile to deviate to that for a second, to give a little bit of historical background. Um, I'm just gonna draw you a map here. Sorry for this for one second. Okay, here's my map. Let's see what it looks like. Let me look, 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 look. Okay, okay, so here's Turkey, this big country here. Here's the same Armenia that I drew on the other map. And this is Nagorno-Karabakh here on the other map, this little island. You see where all this here hatches and squares are? This is where Armenians live inside of what was then the Ottoman Empire. Um, it wasn't Turkey as a country, because Turkey was only founded in 1923. But beforehand, it was the Ottomans who ruled over the whole of the Middle East, including Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, etc. And in the eastern part of Turkey, there was a huge Armenian community attached to Armenia itself. So in other words, these people and these people were the same people. And they had lived there uh, for maybe 2,000 or more years, living in this eastern part of what is now Turkey. When the First World War broke out, um, there was no Republic of Armenia. Um, it was all ruled by Russia. And Russia declared war, uh, uh, Russia and France uh, and Great Britain were on one side of the First World War, and Turkey and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Prussia were on the other side in the First World War. From a military point of view, what Turkey was afraid of is that these Armenians on living inside of Turkey would help the Russians to, uh, via the Armenians living on the other side of the border, that the Russians would be welcomed by the Armenians to come into Turkey and to sort of, um, you know, march as far as central Turkey uh, because they had these people to rely on living in the east. That was the Turkish excuse to try to get rid of all of these Armenians living over here so that there wouldn't be a kind of a fifth column to welcome Russian troops into the country. That was their explanation in any case. And what they did was they rounded up all these people living here and they marched them south this way into Syria, into the desert where between one and two million people died of starvation and thirst. Um, and uh, you know, a few finally reached uh, uh, the cities in Lebanon and Cairo and, uh, and, 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 and Palestine and that. But, the, but million, millions of them were either killed outright or they just died in, of starvation and thirst you know, walking in the middle of the desert. 
And that was the, that was the Armenian genocide. The Armenians say that the Turks sought to eliminate all of the Armenians uh, because of this sort of ethnic and religious hatred. Uh, the Turks say, first of all, it wasn't us, it was the Ottomans. Second of all, um, a war was going on and these people, there were some armed Armenian brigades that were ready to, to join in with Russia, should Russia uh, join them. And that the, are the Armenians living in the western part of the country, let's say, for example, in Istanbul, were not harmed uh, by this uh, so-called uh, Armenian genocide. So it wasn't, let's put it like this, as clear-cut as, uh, as the Holocaust, because there was no aim to eliminate every last Armenian living in the Ottoman Empire, but it was a close sect. So the bad, the bad relationships between Turkey and Armenia go back, uh, you know, certainly at least that far. Now, um, the Turks, of course, then took the side of the Azeris in this war between uh, Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan. And that's because, uh, you know, the enemy of the, my enemy is my friend on the one hand. And on the other hand, the Azeris and the Turks share a very common language and culture uh, and religion. They're both Muslims. So Turkey, what they did in this war is that they sent um, troops from Syria, where, uh, as you know, um, Turkey has occupied parts of northern Syria. Turkey has given refuge to uh, more than a million refugees. And what the Turks did was they sort of um, created these brigades of soldiers, of Arab soldiers, that they could pick up and send anywhere they want. And so they picked up and sent a brigade to Libya, and they also picked up and sent a brigade to Azerbaijan. Uh, now, the moment they got there, uh, the Turks were, these Arabs from Syria were given Azeri uniforms and were thrown into the battle against the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. So Turkey has taken a very direct intervention in this war. They also shot down a, um, an Armenian uh, fighter plane with missiles. Um, and uh, the, you know, it's, it's heated up to the point where uh, the rest of Europe is starting to want to intervene. The two big interveners are Russia, who normally would be on the Armenian side, but uh, does not want to have a full-scale war breaking out in the Caucasus because, you know, once you start, um, you know, a war like that, there's no, no, no knowing where it's going to end. That's number one. And France, of all people, is another country which has taken strong interest in this conflict. And why France? Because France has a huge Armenian um, uh, minority living in the country and uh, they sort of see themselves as a defender of Armenia. And uh, between France and Russia, they've been calling for ceasefires in this, in this uh, battle. Uh, Azerbaijan was the big loser in the first war, in the 1994 war. And, you know, unless, unless we think this is just an idea of people shooting BB guns at each other, you have to realize that there were hundreds of thousands of refugees who have uh, Azeri refugees who um, were um, moved out of the territories that Armenia captured and also moved out of Nagorno-Karabakh itself 
to go into Azerbaijan. And these refugees are demanding that the Azerbaijani government fight back and take back their lands and take back their homes so that they could go back and live where they were living before. Um, the uh, Armenians uh, are the kind of weak, we'll call them the weak sister in this whole conflict in a certain sense, because they're right next door to Turkey with, it, with its huge um, territory, its huge uh, military, its huge wealth. And Armenia is a landlocked, poor country with pretty well no resources. And, um, you know, they just want to uh, assure the well-being, theoretically, of their, of their uh, community living within that territory of Azerbaijan in that little, in this little um, pocket here. So right now, the Armenians do, did capture this, most of this territory and all of the land between the two countries, between Nagorno-Karabakh here and Armenia over here. So this little square over here was captured by Armenia and they still hold it. The Azerbaijanis want to take it back like that. Now, what does Azerbaijan do for money? They have oil. See in this Caspian Sea here, there's tons of oil located underneath the water of the Caspian Sea. And um, the Azerbaijanis knew from the start that in order to sell this oil, they have to deliver it out to the world because it's no good being stuck in the Caspian Sea. Who's going to buy it there? Nobody. Now, the shortest distance to a market would have been two ways. To take, uh, uh, to take the... Um, to take the oil and ship it into Russia and through Russia back into Europe. But the, Azeri, the Azerbaijani said, no, if we do that, we're going to be dependent on Russia and they're a lot stronger than we are. So they could just shut the taps off and then we'll have no outlet for our oil. The next shortest route would have been from, from the Caspian Sea right across Azerbaijan into Armenia and from Armenia into Turkey. But guess what? They said, look, if the Armenians decide they don't like us, which they, we know they don't, they'll shut the taps and we'll have no outlet. And so what they did was they built this pipeline from here all the way up over the top of Armenia through Georgia. See, over here, Georgia, Georgia, they went all the way over the top of, of Armenia in through Georgia and from Georgia into Turkey and then from Turkey down to the coast. And that's where their oil goes. Now, um, who do you think is one of the biggest buyers of this oil coming from the Caspian Sea? Who lives in the Middle East and has no access to oil from the Middle East? It's Israel. Yeah. So up until a couple of weeks ago, Israel had no sources of oil and Israel has no oil of its own. Um, uh, to buy from the Middle East. And so Israel was importing oil from Mexico and from Angola and, you know, places far away. This is like right in the backyard. And so uh, Israel was the big, one of the biggest customers of oil on that pipeline that passed from Azerbaijan to Turkey and from the coast of Turkey right to the refinery in Haifa. Um, while we're at it then, uh, let's talk a little bit, believe it or not, 
about the Jewish community in Azerbaijan? Well, first of all, let's say that Israel is an ally. Where does Israel stand in this conflict? Israel is a closer ally to Azerbaijan than to Armenia. And why is that? Because Azerbaijan, although is a Shia Muslim country next to Iran, it's, an, it's in a way an enemy of Iran. The reason for that is because the Azerbaijan is regarded as a secular Muslim country. Iran, of course, is a, a theocracy. It's a, it's a country of Shia Muslims ruled by the mullahs. Azerbaijan is a country of Shia Muslims, but it's ruled by um, you know, a president in a secular society. So Iran and Azerbaijan are not friends with each other. All the more so because in the northwest corner of Iran, there is a huge Azeri minority. This Azeri, the, these Azeri-speaking people are more numerous in Iran than they are in Azerbaijan. So Iran is always worried that the Azeri, the country of Azerbaijan will appeal to Azeris living in Iran and somehow will lead to a separatist movement in Iran itself. And so these two countries have been at loggerheads now for a long time, to the point where Iran is offering help to Armenia, of all things, in this conflict. Um, Israel, of course, does whatever Iran doesn't do, and um, therefore Israel and Azerbaijan have been close allies now for a fairly long time. Israel has been selling them weapons, and Azerbaijan has been selling Israel oil. Uh, I thought it would be worthwhile to mention and of interest to, to our listeners that Azerbaijan has today the only 100% Jewish town outside of Israel and outside of, uh, you know, uh, uh, the uh, New York uh, State uh, Hasidic communities. Um, Jews have lived in the Caucasus Mountains for uh, 2,000 years and maybe more, maybe since even the, the uh, Assyrian um, exile in uh, 722 BC, but certainly uh, by the Babylonian exile of 586 BC, there were Jews who were living uh, next door to Babylon, which is Iraq, uh, northern Iraq especially, and uh, they spread into the Caucasus, and especially when the Persians um, took over from the Babylonians, the Jews prospered in the Persian Empire, and so they were part of that whole region. And they set themselves up in different communities in the Caucasus, um, and they began speaking a language which is a mixture of Jewish, of, of Hebrew and Persian. Um, and uh, these Jews uh, who live in Azerbaijan still use that language to this day, although needless to say with modern, modern times, it's kind of dying out. So, a city was established for specifically for the Jews uh, in northern Azerbaijan, next to the larger city of Kuba. And in this town, the Jews got established. And at one time, there were 13 synagogues. And now there are eight synagogues left, of which two are still in operation. There's around 3,000 Jews living in that, uh, in that town. Uh, there were once over 200,000 Jews living in all of the Caucasus. But of course, with uh, migration and the establishment of the State of Israel 
and uh, you know, uh, you know, people moved off to Europe, to the U.S., to Russia itself, and of course to Israel. But that town is still there. Uh, some very wealthy uh, Jews who came out of that town have provided for uh, the town folk and refurbished the synagogues, and it's now become a tour tourist attraction because of its unique status in that in that way. Some people have written that it's the last surviving shtetl, meaning it's a 100% Jewish town surrounded by non-Jews. In this case, of course, it's surrounded by Muslim Azeris who have always gotten along well with their Jewish compatriots and there was never any kind of anti-Semitism in Azerbaijan. And one of the biggest heroes of Azerbaijan was a Jewish soldier who was the first one to be killed in this Armenian War of 1994. Um, so uh, that's a side uh, point. The name of that Jewish town in Russian is called Krasnaya Sloboda, but its uh, other name is Kimizi Kisebi, and it's right on the bank of a river. And on one side of the river are where the Muslims live, and the other side is where the Jews live. Um, so uh, where is this conflict going to end? There's going to have to be a ceasefire at some point, but how to resolve this is one of what's called a frozen conflict. So a frozen conflict is one like in Cyprus or like in Nagorno-Karabakh where there was a war between two very different sides and where the cost of continuing the war is more than the cost of freezing the war. But they can't come to a political agreement because the divisions are too strong. And so you end up with what's called a frozen conflict. And the uh, Cyprus one and the Nagorno-Karabakh one are two of the best examples in Europe of a frozen conflict. Um, so that's, uh, in short, I think that's a pretty, uh, pretty uh, concise explanation of this problem. I would just like to just go over just a thumbnail sketch of other sort of civil wars that are going on in the world, which because of the US elections and COVID are not getting much attention anymore. But in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, uh, there are civil wars going on. Um, and these civil wars are being uh, complicated by outside intervention. In Syria, of course, it's Russia and Iran on one side and Turkey on the other side. In Libya, it's Egypt and the United Arab Emirates on one side versus Turkey and Russia on the other side. So strangely enough, Turkey and Russia are on one side in Libya on opposite sides in Syria. In Yemen, it's uh, Iran versus um, uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Lebanon, a country, is just waiting to explode into another civil war, but things are calm at this moment. Um, and in West Africa, maybe one that has the least amount of attention, there are civil wars going on between the jihadists, the, in other words, Islamic radicals on the one hand versus the, the governments which are corrupt and weak uh, in places like Burkina Faso, Central African Republic, uh, Mali, and Nigeria. And in all those countries, the jihadists have killed people, taken over territory, uh, challenged the central government, and when the central government mounted an attack that's too strong, they sort of retreat back into the desert and just wait for the next time. In the meantime, 
thousands and thousands of civilians are affected because they get uh, they move or they're killed um, or they're sort of terrorized and um, you know the country stops functioning in the areas where these rebels uh, have strongholds. So uh, although these civil wars are getting less attention now from the Western press, they're still going on. And uh, like in California with the fires, you know, you can have a low fire burning for a while and then it just takes a big spark and boom, uh, you know, everything can go up in flames. Um, so I'm going to stop now and see if you have any comments, questions about the different subjects I spoke to about, which were, first thing was the current US election. The second thing was um, migration and citizenship. And the third thing was the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And the fourth thing was the other civil wars going on in, um, yeah, you know, especially in the Middle East. So let's, uh, let me just stop for one sec, take a drink of water here. Um, as tourism, as far as tourism goes, uh, the Caucasus region is a beautiful place to visit. I met some people who spent a, a month in Azerbaijan and said it was the best place they've ever been. Um, and similarly, uh, there's a lot of tour companies that offer tours of Armenia uh, and the scenery and the people and the food is amazing. Um, and because it's kind of off the beaten track, you don't run into a horde of, of, uh, of cruise ship people getting off the boat in Venice or in Amsterdam. And, um, you know, once uh, hopefully this pandemic and plague is over with, then people can stretch their legs and try and find places to go, which are a little more off the beaten track. And from all I've heard, uh, Azerbaijan is uh, definitely a worthwhile place to go to and not hard to get to. Um, um, you know, you could get there via Istanbul very easily, uh, flights to Baku, and then, you know, everything is cheap in these countries because the standard of living is much lower than in uh, Western Europe. So, uh, you know, if you're one of these off the beaten track adventurers, uh, it's definitely worthwhile to go, and it's on my list uh, to go as well. Anybody have some questions or comments? Let's see, I'm looking at my screen. Yeah. Mr. Dwaskin, I see Howard has a question for you. Uh, Howard, unmute yourself, please. Hi, Howard. I wanted to know what you thought about what Trump did after uh, came back from the hospital yesterday, like that whole staged thing. It was like a reality show. Like he came, he came back with a, a mask and then he, he took it off. He came back in, he, he didn't like it. Um, I, I'm having a feeling that he never had coronavirus. I think he just staged this whole thing because why, you know, uh, at coronavirus, no, why would the, no. why would, why would people in the hospital let him go? I, I, I think it was staged. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so it's funny how, it, it, Howard, it, it's um, people uh, today are so conditioned to uh, conspiracies and conspiracy thoughts and theories. And, and, you know, certainly Trump is one who promotes these things that it, it becomes that everyone believes that news is fake news. But 
uh, indeed, uh, for sure. I mean, you know, I'm sitting here in Montreal, but uh, he did have coronavirus. The president did. It was it was confirmed. Um, but you know, his training is a, is a showman. He 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 is a person who made his kind of um, image the only thing he has to sell, and he's a believer in macho. And, uh, and, you know, he's bullied his way through his business and his entertainment career. And his entertainment career was the only one he really succeeded at. And um, so for him, looks and appearances are very important. And, uh, you know, all the people around him, the people who he respects, are people who he considers to be um, good looking, both males and females. And he doesn't want to look weak and doesn't want to look uh, tired and doesn't want to look sick in front of the cameras. And so he staged this, this, uh, this, this little drive around to wave to his supporters, which was horrible because the drivers of his uh, Secret Service vehicle were exposed to a person who had coronavirus. And it was never said on the news, I was asking, did those drivers, did they already have that disease so that they are now immune? But no one ever said that they did. So um, he theoretically endangered those two um, drivers, you know, just to show off to his fans that he's alive and well. Um, I have to say that uh, I don't believe the American public is buying his uh, thoughts that COVID is not serious. He tweeted today that it's, the flu is more serious than COVID. Um, and, um, you know, with uh, 210,000 people dying, I don't know if anyone buys that. At this point in America, I believe pretty well everybody knows somebody who's caught COVID. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Do you have any but more sure, questions, Howard? But I'm sure he had it. I'm sure he had it. Not that I can say for sure, but, but I'm sure but, he did have it. But COVID is such a bad, Thing. How could he, how could after three days he be completely okay? Because some people who get COVID never get sick at all. Uh, in fact, uh, a good half of people who catch COVID are completely asymptomatic or have such small symptoms as if they have a cold or a bad cold. That's more than half of the people who catch it. Unfortunately, for people who are seriously affected, it's very serious. But for most people, they, as you could see from the statistics, um, in the United States anyway, close to seven and a half million people have caught it, but uh, 210,000 people died of it. In Canada, we have roughly the same ratios. So the vast majority of people recover. Some, however, recover but have long-lasting um, long -lasting side effects or symptoms, you know, uh, lung damage and heart damage, but that's also a small minority. Um, you know, the, the tragedy of this disease is that 40% of the people who get it are completely asymptomatic. So they could pass it on to somebody else without even knowing that they themselves are sick. And that's the, that's the, that's the tragedy of this disease. If everyone, you know, got sick, well, then they could isolate themselves. So has the media in a way over, overplayed uh, the, 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 the bad cases? If, have they, uh, uh, um, the word of the uh, sensationalized? Uh, no, I don't think that the, uh, no, well, you know, I think that the media are trying to play a few different games at the same time. 
um, you know, uh, sensationalized makes news and people, uh, you know, are, are tuning in and reading because there is something of interest uh, on the one hand. But on the other hand, they're trying to protect the public by, by um, uh, publicizing the seriousness of the disease, by publicizing what you can do to fight it, which is masks and social distancing. Um, so they're playing a few different roles at the same time. Um, I don't think that it's overblown. I think that it's the most serious disease, as you, as you uh, might have heard, uh, the, in the United States, it's killed more people in the U.S. than soldiers were lost in the First World War and the Second World War and the Korean War and the Vietnam War and the Afghan War all put together. So, um, you know, that's how serious it is. And it's not finished, you know, it's, uh, there's projections uh, of another at least 100,000 deaths between now and, and uh, you know, the end of the winter, at least. So it is something serious. And, uh, you know, we don't know the long-term effects of it either because it hasn't been around for a long while. But for sure, there are long-term effects for people who get, who get really sick from it. Uh, even uh, neurological effects, uh, heart effects, lung effects, and things like that. So I don't think it's being overplayed. I think uh, Trump, uh, from the very beginning, decided that this would be a threat to his presidency, and so he tried to downplay it. And, um, you know, unfortunately for him, it, uh, it didn't disappear by April. And uh, otherwise, he feels he would have won the election. So, uh, but he said you know, the Sorry, what do you make that he said to Bob Woodward in February? He knew how bad it is, but he didn't want to tell the public the truth because he was afraid he would be a panic. Right, that, that's true. I'm not sure if he believed Bob Woodward. That's, I'm not sure. I mean, I need to say, um, you know, he was told by authorities that this is a serious disease, but because so early on it affected so few people, he just chose not to believe how serious it would have become, it could have become. I don't know if he would have done anything different, mind you, it's a, it's a good question. But, you know, in a certain sense, you can't blame, I mean, you know, we all were living in February, uh, hearing about the disease in China, hearing about some cases in Europe, but, you know, when we were isolated in North America, no one would have thought that we could have, um, such a strong mortality rate in, in, in our country. But the scientists knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of, of time, of when. Any more questions, Howard? No, thank you. Okay. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. We have uh, Aviva that wants to ask you a question. Sure. Uh, please unmute yourself, Aviva. Aviva, please unmute yourself. Aviva? Hello? You hear me? I yes. Can you hear me now? Yes, no, I can hear you. Okay, first of all, I have a comment. Um, many years ago in the 30s and the 40s in Montreal, the Communist Party was very strong. And when, when the Soviet Union declared Girobojan a refuge for, for, for Jews, there was a big hullabaloo. We don't need Israel anymore. We don't need Palestine anymore. 
Let's all go to Birabajan. Do you right. remember the movement? Do I remember it? Um, I'm, too, uh, I'm too young to remember it, uh, I have to say, but I certainly know lots about it. Um, so Birobijan was a, a scheme thought up by Stalin to, um, to, I would say, to try to convince Jews who were living in the Soviet Union that their homeland is in the Soviet Union. And because there were lots of different, as I was saying before, um, ethnic homelands, Stalin decided to set one up for the Jews in opposition to Palestine, which was set up by the British as a home, national home for the Jewish people. So he was saying, look, the Jews, you know, if, if this national home in Palestine ever gets going, maybe the Jews of the Soviet Union will become disloyal and want to uh, either go there or even to support Great Britain who were managing it. So by setting up a homeland in the Soviet Union itself, uh, his idea was to kind of just counteract that and to give an outlet to Jews who are passionate about their own identities to have a feel a, a, a national home in the Soviet Union. But where they picked this national home was nowhere near where the Jews lived. It was in the most remote part of the Soviet Union, pretty well the most remote part that you can imagine. It was on the uh, Chinese border with Ma the Manchurian um, border with uh, Russia in the very far east of the country, freezing cold practically nine and a half months of the year no Jewish connection whatsoever to that place. In other words, they could have picked, you know, Belarus or Ukraine or, or they could have done Crimea, which would have been a much better idea to make Crimea the Jewish national home in Soviet Union because Crimea was a um, kind of um, a place where Jews had, had been established for a long time. It was easy to sort of self-identify as a peninsula. It had decent weather. So, I mean, it could have been an attractive alternative to Palestine, but to pick Birobijan at the end of the Trans-Siberian Railway, uh, you know, a few thousand Jews did move out there as patriots, um, but it never uh, attracted even 1% of all the Jews living in the Soviet Union, which was uh, before the First World War, uh, could have been as many as 4 million. So, Maybe 25,000 went out at the most. Uh, there are still a few left. It still has the official status as being a sort of a Jewish uh, oblast, what they call it. And, you know, with the names of streets, uh, Shalom Aleichem Street and uh, Mendel Amochar Svarim Street and things like that. Uh, there is one functioning synagogue in Barobijan. I think the Chabad have got their hands on it. Um, but uh, the Jews are well under 5% of the population of the people who live there, which are a kind of a mixture of Mongols and, and Russians and, um, you know, uh, other Siberian, uh, uh, you know, people. So it's, it's a backwater. And there's, uh, you know, it's so far away from Moscow that even tourism would be hard pressed to find it. So it was a, it was a failure, but it served its purpose at a certain time. I don't know, by the way, if any Jews from outside of Russia, outside of the Soviet Union, 
uh, went there as a kind of a communistic patriotic uh, pride thing. Some went to visit, but I don't think anybody actually, once they saw the place, the, 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 the you know, the, <laughs> the housing, the isolation, the weather, uh, nothing doing there. I think they turned around in their fur coats and went back to Europe and went back to North America and said, okay, we've seen it, that's it. Yeah, well, they talked a lot about it. Can yeah, but they, they didn't do much. They didn't do much there. Well, I think because they were against the Jewish homeland in um, Palestine, they didn't, they didn't support that. Right, that could very well be. That, that was an alternative for, for left-wing uh, Jews uh, who wanted some national identity uh, in a specific place. Uh, they may have supported the... the it also, uh, and you made a good point that besides kind of uh, having an outlet for um, Russian, maybe Russian patriotic Jews, it also served uh, to get support for the Soviet Union itself from outside the Soviet Union, from, from we'll call it progressive forces, uh, because they say, well, look, they, they did so much as to set up a homeland for the Jews, and therefore it, it certainly enabled left-leaning Jews in Europe and in North America to support the Soviet Union for that yes. reason. Yes, that's a, a good point. Can I ask a question? Sure. Um, what about Afghanistan in this whole conflict there in the Middle East? I, I, should, have, I should have mentioned it, uh, but I didn't. The, the civil war is still ongoing there. And um, they haven't had, um, pretty well, they haven't had peace, I would say, since the 1970s. But the conflict there is, uh, we'll call it slow burning, is still between the same forces, um, namely the Taliban on the one side who want to create a, an Iranian style theocracy in the country, in other words, ruled by Islamic law, uh, by, by Islamic um, uh, uh, mullahs on the one hand, and on the other hand would be the forces backed by the West who want to establish somewhat of a kind of a more modern society, um, more outward looking, uh, one where um, uh, women have a right to education and to promotion and to universities and things like that. It's an extremely conservative society, no matter what side you're on, so to speak. Um, it's extremely poor. It's probably, outside of Africa, it's probably, probably the poorest country in, in the world outside of the African countries. Um, the only thing that they produce there of any value is opium for, um, uh, poppies for opium, heroin. Uh, it's landlocked completely. It's surrounded by mountains on many sides and deserts by other sides. It's pretty, it's, a, it, it's an unfortunate, let's say, country who's living at the low point now. But if you go back to the 1300s, the founders of the Muslim Empire of India came from there, came from Afghanistan. And, um, you know, they, in other words, they lived a lot better in the olden days than they live today. Let's put it like that. Uh, yes. The Americans are lost and losing interest in supporting the country. They don't want to put any more soldiers in. They don't want to put any more money in. Um, you know, the whole world is concerned with COVID. And um, it's, 
it's teetering. You know, the country is teetering. Um, the Americans were trying to arrange a uh, kind of a truce between the Taliban and the government to invite the Taliban to be part of the government uh, on condition that the government, uh, you know, the ta Taliban recognize, we'll call it Western values. Taliban are not that interested in doing that. So it's a bit of a stalemate at this point. And the Taliban's game is a waiting game. They're waiting for the Western powers to leave Afghanistan so that they could move in and take over again. That's their, that's their idea. The government's idea is to encourage the West to stay there, to protect them, and uh, you know, to uh, ha have the West help in the fight against the Taliban. That's pretty well where things are standing in that country today. Um, Any, any other, any other um, question? By the way, it's also one of the fastest growing countries in population because women there, unlike pretty well everywhere else, are still having uh, five and six and seven kids. So um, it is, uh, the population is growing and um, it's just very, very poor at, at this point. Mm -hmm. Any more questions, Aviva? Um, I just can I I just want to recommend a book. Can I do that? Sure. I just finished reading Ten Thousand Sons by uh, Husseini. I think that's his name. Okay. Pretty a good picture. I think a good picture of what Afghanistan is like now, or right. maybe that way anymore. Just when he wrote the book with the. Mm -hmm. Taliban were very evil in that book. Yeah, um, I've heard of it. I didn't read it. I did hear. I did hear of the book. Um, you know, uh, it's um, uh, you know, it's it's um, a country which needs peace and reconciliation, and um, the uh, the non-Taliban side of the country has their political divisions, of course. There are two main populations in that country, a Persian-speaking side and a Pashtun-speaking side, like the people in Pakistan, Pashtuns. And um, they also have a, a strong Shia minority, but a Sunni Muslim majority. And, um, you know, so it is a kind of a multi-ethnic, multicultural country, which they, because the Taliban are such a formidable enemy, they forced everybody else who's non-Taliban to get along with each other, to compromise with each other, and to make a kind of a government with each other. Uh, now, uh, the Taliban have been getting stronger and stronger the more the U.S. has left the country. Uh, they control uh, lots of the eastern part of the country. And um, they're trying to undo all the reforms that were done in the, you know, in the past 10 years, um, as far as civil society is concerned and women's rights are concerned and all of that. Um, and if they militarily succeed to do, to win over more territory, they'll impose their own regime on the areas that they control. Um, and at first when the Taliban got started, they were very much against the drug trade but uh, then once they got in power, they realized that's their only source of income. And so they promote growing opium poppies and they take a tax 
on you know the farmers who grow it. So you know it's an un, you know it's not a country in the best situation, but they they've been worse than they are now. Let's put it like that. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. you, Aviva. Mr. Doskin, I have a question for you. It's from anonymous uh, attendee. It says, please, more comments about yesterday's Biden's performance. Okay, I watched it, uh, you know, with four eyes, as they say. Uh, overall, I would give him a 75% uh, to 80%. Um, he has to try to um, get his thoughts in order before he starts to speak. And that's not always the easiest thing to do. You know, I'm speaking to you. And as I'm speaking, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next. It's not the easiest thing to do. But uh, he tends to ramble and to start sentences without finishing them and to get off, sub, off, off the topic. Uh, but more importantly of what he says, I think, is how he says it and how he appears, which is to be a moderate person, a conciliatory person, a unifying person. And I think what was significant was one of the last questions they asked him was sort of, are you a socialist or are you afraid of socialists and communists and the Democratic Party? And he said, listen, take a look at me. Do I look like a socialist to you? I don't know what a socialist is supposed to look like, but I, I think he was convincing to say, look, it's ridiculous to think that the Democratic Party is socialist or communist. Uh, I've been an American with solid American religious values all my life. And, um, you know, I'm here to bring back civility to the government. I don't have any really strong uh, radical um, plans to overthrow the U.S., to, uh, you know, bring in socialism to the U.S. And I think he's going to win on that basis, that America just wants peace and quiet, an end to the chaos and sanity. And they pick a guy who's so inoffensive that, you know, how, how could you go wrong with a guy like that? You know, there's some people who suspect uh, Kamala Harris, We'll see her on Wednesday. It's, uh, she's a brilliant, brilliant uh, debater, uh, former prosecutor, very, very intelligent. Uh, and I think that her goal is to convince the viewers that she also is not a socialist, that she's also not a revolutionary. And she's not about to defund the police. She's not about to, um, you know, uh, overthrow the, uh, the churches. She's not about to, uh, you know, do any kind of the radical things that uh, Trump supporters say that the Democrats would do. So that would be her job. To also to sh say, look, um, Biden said today, and he said before, that he's a one-term president. He's not gonna run a second time. He is 77 years old. So that means that, you know, figure add on about five years. So. You know, he'd be about 82 by the time his first term finishes. And he says, look, I'm, that's it. I'm just here to bring back sanity and normality to the U.S. And then whoever follows me will be from a younger generation. And uh, uh, Harris has to say, well, I'm the younger generation. I'm the one who is equipped and capable of leading the country. Um, I recognize the problems that it has. Uh, I know that America needs changes, but not radical changes. That, that would be, you know, her best um, kind of uh, uh, optic. And um, I'm sure that's what she's going to do. 
She's not going to bring out the Bernie Sanders handbook of, uh, of democratic socialists. And she never was one herself. <clears throat> In fact, uh, some of the biggest, uh, uh, some of the biggest um, criti critics of her was that she was too tough a law and order person as the um, Attorney General of California. She sent too many people to jail. She um, was too tough on petty crime. And, uh, you know, so she's attacked from that perspective. And she has to say, look, both people can't be right. I can't be at the same time a radical on the one hand and at the same time a law and order person on the other hand. Like, uh, it doesn't go. I'm, I'm neither. I'm in the middle. So that, that would be her, her, uh, her main aim. And also, I think, you know, to try to shore up her support and the democratic support among women and among minorities who are important parts of that coalition. And she has to say, look, I'm here for you and I understand you and, you know, please come out and support me. But uh, I was just reading the latest polls and, you know, you can distrust polls all you want, but Biden's lead is widening. That was what the last poll said. I think, I think they said he was up by 12 points, which is, when you think of it, the last poll taken before the US election uh, of Hillary Clinton in 2016, she was up by something like three and a half points. And that three and a half points went down to 2.1. That's how she won by 2.1% uh, and still lost the election. So um, if things stay the same the way they are now, Biden is going to win in a huge, with a huge majority. And it'll be so big that Trump can't say fake ballots, fake post, fake this, fake that. It's just, it would be too big a win if things stay the way they are right now. And uh, voting is, you know, started already. I think I read somewhere around 5 million people have voted in the U.S., which is about 3%, uh, let's see, 5 million, 150 million. Uh, yeah, about 3% of the people have voted already. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, the election is now. The election is today, actually. It's going on. Anything I else? I see another question. Uh, sure. Anonymous attendee asks, what's Puff Afghanistan? What is? Puff Afghanistan. I, you know, Angela, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you quite well. Can you say it again? Yes. The person that is asking, what's Puff Afghanistan? What is Afghanistan? No, Afghanistan. I think I think you were trying to say Afghanistan, but you said Afghanistan by accident. No, I didn't say Afghanistan. Yeah. No, sorry. Okay. No, 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 <laughs> no. There's um, uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, the stand, by the way, the ending stand just means the country. So you know, you have Uzbekistan and and Pakistan and uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. So the Stan ending means a country and um, Afghanistan is the country of Afghans. I see two more raised hands. Uh, first one is Ruby, please unmute yourself, please. Hi. Hi. I just, I just saw a little video of uh, Biden. It's so bad, I don't want to say it, but it's amazing how you see him speaking uh, concerning the Muslims, how he's going to turn everything around. 
I'd like to send it to you if you'd like to see it. Yeah, sure. You could uh, email me. It's my what? email is my email is my name. Right. Yeah. Um, they didn't. He didn't address that. He didn't. You know, there wasn't a question in the um, uh, in the meeting last night about my immigration to the U.S. and illegal immigration and DACA and what to do about all the illegal people in the country. Uh, and needless to say, there wasn't any questions about sort of the role of Muslims in um, in the U.S. either. Um, but uh, it, it, I would have been interested if it was me asking a question. I would have asked, well, you know, what do you propose to do about the 11 million uh, people who have no stat, no legal status in the U.S., but have been living here for 30 or living there for 20 and 30 years, who are tax-paying, English-speaking people, and what are you going to do about it? You know, so that would have been a a question. And I, another question I would have asked is, are you in favor of the legalization of marijuana on a federal level? Uh, because, um, you know, it's clearly an answer that you could say yes or no to. And, uh, um, you know, that would be another interesting subject. Um, but uh, if you want to send me something, my email address is my name, hersheydwaskin at yahoo.com. So just send it and I'll have a look at it. Okay, th this was a little speech two and four Muslims, and it just turns my stomach. I think you should see it. What, was it, what, what was it about that, that turned your stomach? About what they're going to do and how, how. I, I just, I don't even want to say it. I want you to see it. Sure. No problem. I will. Just send okay. it to me and Keep I up will. Thank you so much, Ruby. Thank you. Somebody else? Any more questions, Ruby, or that's it? That's it for now. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I see one. Happy, have one good, a good New Year. You too. I see one more person, Michael R. Please unmute yourself. Okay, I'm listening, Michael. Unmute yourself, and then I can hear you. Michael, please unmute yourself to ask your question. That's the top, on the top of your uh, iPad, there's a little symbol there that says mute or unmute. So you have to press it. Michael, please unmute yourself. Well, he's not answering, Mr. Dwaskin. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, technology will always uh, sometimes screw things up. Yes. So, you do you have any last words for today's lecture or any words um, of wisdom? Uh, well, um, you know, I, uh, I my last words I think would be that um, the president has uh, kind of been pushing a vaccine to appear before the election so he can show that, um, you know, the end, is, the end is near, kind of. And, um, you know, I think we're so fortunate to know that so much effort is being put into this vaccine that uh, a vaccine will appear, uh, not before the end of October, however, but 
you know, certainly by the very end of the year or into the first half of the next year. And, um, you know, once, the, once it's given its approval by the FDA uh, and the World Health Organization, I would urge everybody to get that vaccine. And, um, you know, by doing that, we will be able to kind of put this pandemic behind us and go back in part to living the way we were living before. And uh, I'm hoping that everyone who lives through this and who lives a lot longer uh, after this will remember this as a kind of a nightmare uh, in the same way as we remember, you know, not the same way, but, you know, the ice storm that we went through uh, in, in here in Quebec, uh, where, you know, everyone who was there at that time remembers it. So everybody around the world will remember, oh, that pandemic of COVID and how it destroyed our lives for a whole year. And I just hope that we could look, we could be looking in the rear view mirror far enough so that it's a distant memory. Um, so let's be safe, let's be healthy, follow the new guidelines of the government. Uh, we're in a red zone, so we have to act like we're in a red zone. And uh, the more we can do to help, the better off the result is going to be in the long run. So thanks everybody for listening, and I'll see you next week. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.